All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 4. Um, just a couple things to let you know about uh, that I think are worthy of a little bit of celebration. And again, Presbyterian celebration is more than golf clap. So uh, we closed on our house. Yeah, yeah. Um, that means I've got to behave uh, and I can't get fired anytime soon. Uh, and so, so I need your help. Uh, in prayer and otherwise. Um, and so we will move on the 14th and no, you don't have to help unless you wanna give toward the cost of the movers because we, don't, we think loving you is not asking you to lift our heavy things uh, from our perspective. Sometimes you have to do that and that's okay. And I wanna give thanks to Jules Free, uh, Greg Clemens and Jared Eubanks, who I don't think is here this morning, they did in fact help someone lift their heavy stuff, which was the Doigs on Thursday, I think Thursday and Friday. So for those of you who know the Doig family, they have moved to Habersham. They will be coming back. Uh, and so we'll get a chance to pray with them and for you, you to have a chance to say goodbye to them. But thank you to those men who lifted heavy things. Uh, you're good men. Um, and then also to Meredith Chin, who is currently serving in threes and fours, uh, just, uh, which is amazing to me. She is going to have uh, her baby on Thursday. Uh, and so if you get a chance to say hello to her and pray for her, you also have some opportunities. Uh, we will have some opportunities to serve their family. I'm sure they'll, they'll could use some meals and some other things. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we'll, we'll make sure to take care of that. So uh, it's good to see you all this morning. You are, in fact, the faithful remnant at this point and uh, for Memorial Day weekend. And so as we turn our attention to the text, I just want to remind us of a couple things. First and foremost, let me, let me tell you what I want you to get from this sermon. And I think this is critical. Um, it, it's, a, it's an issue that um, I think is still prevalent in our time. Um, but that our knowledge of God, which is shaped by worship, um, determines our relationship with God and others. So said another way, what we know about God affects how we treat other people and how we think of him, our relationship with him, right? Now let me be, let's be really careful here because we're Presbyterian, uh, because we're Reformed. We can think that that means we know really big words and that we know really deep theology and that if, you, if any book you read is less than 400 pages, you're just not even trying. That's not what I mean. That is not what the scripture means. This means to know him simply as Abba Father, to know him as daddy, to know him as the one who loves and provides for us. Now, all those other things are wonderful and they can be helpful to us, but don't ever think that when scripture speaks of knowing God, that it means anything other than to know him so you can relate to him. Because remember, the whole point of the story, Genesis to Revelation, is that God longs to dwell in intimate relationship with his people. God longs to be with us. Now, who among us is not uh, moved when someone says, I like you and I want to hang out with you? Or they evidence that they, they like us because they invite us into things. Or they include us in things. All of us are moved by that, even the most curmudgeonly of us, of which I am numbered. Especially if you invite me to play games, right? So, so I want to say, let's make sure that we don't lose the real heart of this story. We've got some hard text coming up. So what I want us to do before we get into Hosea 4 is flip to the end of the book of Hosea. And I want us to read together Hosea chapter 14, verses 4 through 7. Because if, if you hear Hosea 4 out of context, you will leave 
supremely discouraged. If you hear Hosea 4 out of the context of this worship service, so we've said this before, one of the reasons that you have the confession of sin and assurance of pardon before we ever get to the sermon is so that you will remember who and whose you are before you hear word one. And that's so critical, isn't it? Because we all, if we're honest, have cracked filters. Some of us, our filter is so cracked that we make everything about us. Everything's about us, somehow, some way, right? And that's something we all struggle with, myself included. Or we make it about something other than what the gospel intends for us to make things about. So we have to confess always humbly that we all see through a glass half darkly. None of us sees this completely clear apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and his grace and mercy. And we see what we can see because God loves us and wants to be with us, right? So hear God's word, Hosea 4. Four through seven, you got to keep, we're going to read this every single week, actually. It's going to be, uh, and this is bonus, you're not being charged for this, so this is free. I will heal their apostasy. Now, what does apostasy mean? That just means disobedience. That means them going against wanting to know the Lord. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. That is, what you got to hear is God's choice. God's will is to love his people freely. His will is to be with his people, and he will heal our, their apostasy, not because of anything that we do to make us lovely and worthy of that apostasy being healed, but because he chooses to love that which he created. Amen? It's okay, Presbyterians. Go ahead. Let's try it. Memorial Day. A Memorial Day. Amen? Amen. Amen. Wow. We almost went charismatic. Let's calm it down. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily and he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. Now, what does all that mean? That just means that his people, because of his free love for them, are going to prosper. But not in the kind of prosperity that's overly Americanized or Westernized, but in the thing that matters the most, they're going to prosper in their knowledge of the Lord and then their, their ability to display his glory in the world. Would that that would be our greatest desire, that our displaying of the glory of God would be our highest concern. For some of you, your highest concern, which by the way is selfish. And I say that as lightly as I can say, but your highest concern is making sure that you don't sin. So you try to get out of a number of things so that you don't increase your account of sin. May, can I ask you in Christ, who's keeping account anymore? Except for you. There is no account being kept. There's not a number of sins. In fact, what you've been set free to do is the positive side of things, which is Glorify the Lord your God in this world. And all of our energy ought to go toward that because you've been given every resource in order to be able to do exactly that. We were talking last night, because this is easily proved, right? How many of you respect a job well done? Every one of us respects craftsmanship. We respect when someone goes that extra mile and does a job well done, regardless of their creed or nationality or what it is they do. We just recognize good workmanship. We are God's workmanship, and he has crafted us 
beautifully with everything that we would need and everything that we should ever want to be able to glorify him. And so we ought to be thinking about displaying that craftsmanship in this world through all of our spheres of influence, right? What a gift that we have been so beautifully and intricately created. Think about how that affects discussions on on, on abortion. Think about how that affects discussions on poverty, discussions on um, race, discussions on refugees, discussions on all these things. It changes how we think about those things. Instead of us approaching those issues in fear, we can approach them with great creativity and great craftsmanship and wonderful opportunities to glorify the Lord our God. And so he says that they will be prosperous in the best way possible. Verse seven, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. That means that he will, he will, he will keep the sun from striking them, that anything that could harm them, his shadow covers them. So many of us, I think, evidence a, a, a bad theology of fear of the Lord, right? And, and I've said this in here before, uh, all of your theology, everything you believe can be summed up in this one instance. When you mess up, when you fail, which we will all do, right? Which way do you run? If you run from the throne of God, that says that you fear him and you think he is going to hurt you. Whereas if you run to the throne, recognizing that Christ has paved the way. In fact, the, the, one of the great gifts of the atonement is prayer, that you can come boldly before the throne of grace. The passage that we read from Hebrews, that's a gift from Christ. How many of us are using it? How many of us are accessing that means of grace to shape us into the kind of people who display God's wonderful craftsmanship in this world? Instead of displaying all of the neurosis and all of the brokenness of sin, now, this is a process. It's a sanctification process. So don't beat yourself up for not being all the way there right now, but long for better. Long for what you were created for, which is to be in the presence of the Lord, to be in his shadow. It goes on, they shall flourish. That's why we use that term in here so much. I didn't just make it up. It it's it's really is a term that, that matters. They shall flourish like the grain and they shall blossom like the vine. They, their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So that is how the book of Hosea ends. That's the vision of God for his wayward people. That is the vision of the whole of scripture that we would be restored to the Lord our God, right? So that we could display his glory instead of getting so tangled up in all these little nitpick minutia things that drag us down. So as we approach Hosea 4, let us remember what's come before, the enacted prophecy of chapters 1 through 3. Um, that's, that's ended, and now we're getting into basically the sermons of Hosea that he is giving to the people. Now remember all the good that came from the enacted prophecies, like all the promises that God made that he would restore his people. And now we need to notice who he comes at first, who receives the first sermon. And for me, um, this, is, this is hard because this is directed at the religious leaders. That's who he comes for first, that the condition of Israel, the North Kingdom, is largely and primarily because the priests have failed to do their job. 
one of the things I wrestle with quite a bit is, are we, are we doing our job here? Are we equipping you, the saints? Are we caring for the next generation? Um, are we setting up the church in the future well? Or are we just handing off brokenness so we don't have to deal with it? Are we just kind of passing it along to the next person? And how far should we go? We know that it's not technique-driven, right? The Spirit, only the Spirit can change the heart. And so, um, so know that I am wrestling with this. So be praying for us as leaders that we would lead this church well in setting up the church both for today and for tomorrow, for as long as the Lord allows, that we would equip and give um, good craftsmanship and pass along the wonderful and glorious image of the Lord our God. So as we step into this first 11 verses, this is God's indictment against Israel. And this is the first part, which is the covenant and the law are in ruins. Listen at God's word. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and the committing of adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet, let no one contend and let no, none accuse for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me, and since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me, and I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like people like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the harlot, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish harlotry, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. Now, it's it's, it's important for us as we step into this to recognize this is a, a sermon that's being delivered and the first people that he goes after are the religious leaders because it was their responsibility to make sure that generation after generation knew who God was, what his covenant was, and what his law is, all of which are for the purpose of God's people being able to um, engage him in relationship. And so he says that basically in this first part, he says, you guys have violated the first table of the law, which is the first four commandments, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt make no graven image. Thou shalt not take my name in vain. And thou shalt observe the Sabbath after you have worked six days. So there's a lack of steadfast love and faithfulness and there's no knowledge of God. The, the first table of the law is broken. The result, as you see, is that there is murdering, Lying, adultery, stealing, all the second table of the law lies in ruins as well. So what he is saying here is that your, your knowledge of God has translated into horrible ethics. Because you have not loved the Lord your God, you do not love your neighbor. 
This is very important for us to understand. There are other places in Scripture where this is addressed. Isaiah chapter 1 speaks to this. You may remember it's the, the, the sermon that is so difficult because he kind of sneaks up on him. He says, you know, it's a good thing that we're not like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And everybody's like, yeah. He says, to you, Sodom and Gomorrah. What is this trampling of my courts? What are these feast days that you're observing? Why, why this solemn assembly? He really lays into them. And you could misread that and think, well, I think what Isaiah is saying is that we shouldn't do any of that religious stuff. No, that's not what God is saying because he came up with all that stuff. What he's saying is that it ought to translate into something because if you read further, he says, you don't care for the widow or the orphan. Your ethics are distorted. Instead of worship translating into you being a better display of the image of God in this world to, to display God's glory through loving your neighbor, you are instead selfishly putting all the emphasis upon you. Goes on in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 58, a very similar thing is said. The people cry out and they say, look, we've done all this religious stuff and you don't do anything for us. And God says, well, I didn't ask you to do all that religious stuff for the purpose of hurting other people. He says, you strike with a wicked fist. But instead, what you ought to be doing is clothing the naked, loving, uh, feeding the hungry as if they were your own flesh. If you do all these things, then I would break forth as the dawn. Now, lest you think that's just an Old Testament issue, Matthew 25, or the Sermon on the Mount, actually, speaks to this, right? Again and again, God says, you've heard it said, but I say. And what's being addressed there is not a new law. It's actually the heart of the matter that the law was intended to affect our hearts. Because the Pharisees, what they were trying to do is sin less, right? They were constantly trying to sin less. And one of the ways in which they did that, one of the examples is the taking of oaths, right? It's a hard passage and not, shouldn't be talked about lightly. But it says, you guys swear, you know, you've heard it said, if you swear by the name of the Lord, you should keep it. But I say, don't swear by heaven or swear by Jerusalem or swear by the earth or swear by your head. And what they were doing, and this is very important for us to understand, what they were doing is trying to not break the law. They were trying not to take the name of the Lord in vain. So they were like, well, if we swear by something else, if we take an oath by some other thing, then we can't be guilty. See, because we didn't, we didn't take the Lord's name in vain. And he says, you're missing the heart of the matter. You're yet, because of who you are in me, you're yes, needs to be yes. You need to display the glory of the Lord in this world through keeping your word. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's not saying at all, in any way, shape, or form, that you shouldn't take vows. Vows are something that were taken in the Psalms. Paul takes one in Acts 18. Four men take one in Acts 21. Christ takes them all the time. But what it means is that we ought to care about and, and be cognizant of how we are living in this world and not trying to constantly get out of putting ourselves in bad situations. Because if that's the motivation, think about this for a second, then why would you love anyone? Right? If the motivation is for us to just be better people or, or less sinful people, right? If that's the motivation, then why love anyone? Because that's the greatest risk of all. Right? To love someone is to put yourself at great risk and to put yourself in great position to sin, if that were the point. But it also is the greatest opportunity for the display of the glory of the Lord our God. So Hosea here is taking them to task for ignoring the law. 
and ignoring what the point of the law was. The law is not to save them. It's actually to display God's glory in this world. And so he goes on and he says, as a result of you breaking both tables of the law, the entire land mourns. Think Romans 8 when Paul says, all of creation lies groaning under the weight of, of, of futility, right? And, and they are just, it, creation is just broken by sin and it stands on tiptoe with neck outstretched for the revealing of the sons and the daughters of the glory of God. And so, so creation is deeply affected here. The entire land is affected by their not keeping the law. And if you, if you pay attention, the result is actually worse than the flood, Right? Everything gets swept away. So, so in the flood, God at least preserved a remnant, evidence of his judgment being redemptive. When sin has its way, nothing remains. Nothing is left, not even the fish in the sea. So the gravity of the situation is great here, right? And so everybody is being affected by the sin of the people. And he goes on to say, but I'm not, I'm not mad at the people for what they've done. I'm mad at the priests for the fact that they have not taught. They have not done their job. They have not put forth knowledge of me. And remember, one of the great passages when it comes to the knowledge of God is Exodus 34, 6 through 7, where it talks about the God gives his own confession of himself. He says, I'm merciful, and I'm steadfast, and I'm slow to anger, and I am forgiving, and I am long-suffering, and, and basically, I love you, and even my justice is for you, Right? That's a passage that we should remember. Um, Psalm 100 verse 3 speaks to us knowing God and being his people, being the sheep of his pasture. That The knowledge of God is what draws us near to him and puts us in relationship with him. And the greatest knowledge of God that's ever been displayed is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 says he is the exact imprint. And so because of what Christ has done, and what Christ has revealed in God's glory, we are being transformed into the image of Christ, and therefore we can display this glory in the world. We're not, we not left here. This is not the end of the Bible. So he takes umbrage with the priest, and he even says to them, he says, you are not going to be able to benefit from my word. He says, you're going to stumble by day. Think Psalm 119, the, that the, his word will no longer be their path. And even the prophets will be struck down. They will, those, the false prophets, not all prophets, but the false ones, they will stumble at night. They will, they will not be able to, to help render judgment against these things. They too will be left. So he's beginning to deconstruct the religious structures that were to benefit the nation of Israel, the North Kingdom. He's taking them away. He even goes on to say, I'm going to destroy your mother. Well, that's, that's really, sounds really harsh. But what he's saying there is, I'm going to destroy the governance over this. I'm going to destroy every structure that you have, not just the priests, not just the prophets, but also the king, which is a reference to mother. Then he goes on to say, and this is all because you have, you have rejected knowledge of me. This is why not many of us should be teachers. This is why we should be very careful about how we handle God's word and, and the humility which, with which we should approach it at all times, right? I mean, this is delicate work. This is not something that we can just kind of shoot from the hip. We should, we should, we should be careful what we pass on to the next generation. And that really, that weight of that has really been heavy on me this, for the last few weeks. And he says, since you've forgotten the law of your God, I'm going to forget your children. Now, 
There's a couple of possibilities here that, that he could be speaking to. It could be that he's talking about the disciples that they have made. Um, more likely it is he's saying he's going to bring an end to the priesthood because you became a priest by virtue of birthright. And so what he's essentially saying is I'm bringing your priesthood to an end. You, you will not twist this any further. And think about how that is redemptive judgment. To not let another generation be poorly taught or be mistaught. Because remember what they were being taught, the sin of Jeroboam the first. That they didn't need the temple. That all they needed were these golden calves taking them all the way back to the sin of Aaron. And so he's saying, I'm going to bring that to an end because I can't lose another generation to you. That's, that's justice for the sake of the people. And then he says, but your, your main problem was the more you increase, the more you sin. Now this is, is he saying uh, that prosperity is bad? Not at all. Prosperity inherently is not evil. I know we, we say the, the root of all, money is the root of all evil, um, but it's what we do with it. It's how we look at it. Think about 1 Timothy 6 where Paul warns the rich. He says, he says warn the rich that they be rich in good works and that they remember where their money came from and that they remember that it, even that is temporary, but I am eternal, that they would be connected to the Lord their God. So it's not bad that you would have provisions, right? But it's what you do with them that matters the most. And in this case, the prosperity was actually, instead of the priests and the people giving thanks to the Lord for keeping his promises from Genesis 1, in which he said he would provide for his people, instead of them giving him thanks, they were leveraging this stuff for their own gain. They were actually feeding on the sin of the people. The more the people sinned, the more they benefited. I can tell you, the more you sin, we don't benefit. Um, and so it, does, it doesn't work that way anymore. And so I don't want you to, to, to be beholden to us. We want you to be free in relationship to the Lord. And so the priests had twisted all of these things. And so what God is going to do is he's going to take away their ability to enjoy those things. Listen to what he says. He says, they, they will eat and not be satisfied. They will play the harlot and not multiply. So what he's saying is, I'm taking away all of my blessing from them. They will not benefit from my promises in Genesis 1, 26 to 31, that I would be the great provider. They will lose that benefit and they will not be able to participate in the Abrahamic covenant. They will not contribute to the, to, to the growth and the growing of the people of God. And so he's striking them at the, at the root of the tree. And so he goes on to say that they have forsaken the Lord and they have cherished all of the wrong things. They have pursued wine and harlotry and that they, in fact, have broken the covenant on their side. But what did we read in Hosea 14? God does not break his covenant on his side. He continues to bear with the people and even his judgment is to draw them to him, those who will listen. Because even if, if we read on, it says, those who have ears to hear, let them respond. And remember, Hosea, is not, he's not reading the newspaper, right? This is, this is very important for us. He's not reading the newspaper about what has happened. You understand? He is warning them and telling them what will happen. What does that mean? They have time to repent. In fact, our benediction this morning, we're going to hear that call to repentance, so please hear this as a gracious warning that God is saying this will happen if you don't turn. And remember, he'd been saying it for 200 years. 
How gracious and patient is the Lord our God that he would keep bearing with us even as we sink further and further and further into darkness. Um, William Sanford, Lasour, David Allen Hubbard, and Frederick William Bush have written an Old Testament survey, and this, this quote um, is, is, I think, helps sum up this issue of the knowledge of God. He says, repeatedly, Hosea traces Israel's spiritual and moral problems to the lack of the knowledge of God. Knowledge of God is not merely knowing about God. It is being properly related to him in love and obedience. Israel did not need more information. We do not need more information. But, about God, but a stronger desire for fellowship with God. And I would add to that a stronger desire to display his glory in this world. We're so, we, we, we don't leverage that. We are so worried about um, how people, what people think about us and we're so worried about if we mess up and all these other kind of things. When you have been set free, think about Romans 6, you are no longer a slave to sin. You no longer have to fear uh, death and sin. 1 Corinthians 15, they have been defeated in Christ. Therefore, Live in such a way, knowing that your works are not in vain. So what impact is your, you got to think about you. What impact is your knowledge of God having on how you relate to him? Right? And so how, how you know you relate to him is just answer this one question. Which way do you run when you mess up? That's how you relate to him. That's what you think of him. Whatever it is you think you know about him, it's summed up in that moment. And then, how is it affecting how you treat your family, right? This goes all the way down. Think about, think about one of some of the hardest relationships are actually between siblings, right? And, and how they treat each other and how quickly they turn on each other, but they're great with the neighbors, right? Our kids all the time, uh, just they, they, would, they would come at each other with great fury and death in their eyes, and yet we're so nice to the neighbors, and praise God for at least that part, right? I mean, we're having a fight on all fronts. But how do we treat our family? Husbands, how are you loving your wives? Wives, how are you loving your husbands based on your knowledge of God, not your knowledge of them? Parents, how are you loving your kids based on your knowledge of God, not on your knowledge of them and what you want them to be, but what he would have them to be? How are you doing as a coworker and as a student and everywhere where you have spheres of influence, neighbor and otherwise, how are you displaying your knowledge of God? Because you are. Once you tell somebody or if they figure out in any way, shape, or form you're a Christian, judgment begins, right? They start, everything gets run through that grid, right? And so, Let's take it up a notch. Once they find out you're a pastor, <laughs> it's even worse. I'll be honest with you. It's tough. And what role does your discipleship play in cultivating your knowledge of God into action, right? So discipleship that leads to more knowledge is a bridge to nowhere. But discipleship that leads to you actually working out what you know to the glory of God is, in fact, true discipleship. I know that's hard. Like, I wrestle with the fact that the majority of what we do involves sitting down and talking about a book, right? We're Presbyterians, I get it. But where are we actually joining together to live it out? 
and be with each other so that we earn enough chips to hear what's really going on in our hearts instead of us all pretending to be something we could never be. Let's turn back to the text and look at the rest of God's indictment against Israel. This is where worship is lying in ruins. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray and they have left their God to play the harlot. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and they burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot nor your brides when they commit adultery for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the harlot, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drinks are gone, they give themselves to harlotry. Their rulers dearly love shame. And wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Now, what we need to notice here is that they are, this has become brazen. They are worshiping anywhere and everywhere false gods. There is no one speaking out against any of this under every single kind of tree you can think of on the hilltops. This false worship has become the order of the day. It is changing the culture, and they are brazen about it. And notice, again, this is a further discussion of the breaking of the first, four, the first table of the law. Their knowledge of God is leading, or their lack of knowledge of God is leading them to ruin. Now, he says he's not going to punish the daughters and the wives. But what you need to understand about that is that in and of itself is an act of judgment. What he's saying is, I'm going to let it go on. In fact, I'm going to let you guys go all the way to the very end, which is your destruction. I am not going to call them to judgment because if I do, it may turn you. I've said enough, and I'm not going to call them to judgment. You will pay. You will pay because they will not stop what they're doing. And you will continue to consume your daughters and your wives as a commodity. Remember, that's the great difference between the relationship with God. What we must know is that God has not commodified us. He's placed his image on us. We are so precious to him that he sent his son to die for us. And he gave us every good gift because he is a good, good father. Not another family member, a good, good father. And so they instead are turning to lovers far less wild. And notice what he says. He uses that term Ephraim. And just to remind us, that is Jeroboam, the first tribe. And so he uses that oftentimes to call them to remember who and what they are. And he is actually warning Judah and saying, don't go the way that Israel has gone. Because he loves both Judah and Israel. He loves Israel too, don't forget this. But he's having to deal with the circumstances as they are unfolding. And so, Israel has proven stubborn. Stubborn like a heifer. And they refuse. And it's interesting he used that language. And they are refusing to hear. They are refusing to respond and repent. And they are being blown about with every wind of doctrine. Instead of them having a firm foundation, they live on shifting sand. 
And so, Jeremiah Burroughs um, says this. And it's such a great quote. Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan. He says, idolaters do not content themselves with low degrees of false worship. They're not happy showing up to a worship service and sleeping. That, does not, that, that, that wouldn't fly for them. That's why they cut each other and cut themselves, right? Helps you stay awake, actually. I don't, I don't, I don't say we should do that. But they come expectant to hear from a piece of wood. Do you come expectant to hear from the word of God? Not Cameron, although I am the mouthpiece this morning, Robbie last week, Matthew other times, Wes. Do you come with an expectation that the word of God, which is declared to not return void, would have some impact on you? Because the false worshipers show up excited, right? Goes on. How much less should we, in the way of God's worship, we should not content ourselves with low attainments, but get up to the top of godliness and labor to gain the very height of the worship of God? Listen, worship isn't easy in a distracted and fallen world. I understand that which is why we don't try to manipulate your emotions. It's just too easy, right? So many services, the whole discussion is not about content, but it's, it goes like this, and I have this on good authority. All right, we gotta get them jacked up. That first song, it's gotta come out of the gate swinging. Gotta get the blood pumping. Gotta, we gotta set the place on fire. Right before the sermon, though, we gotta bring it down, gotta get it quiet. Got to get them calmed down because we need them to pay attention for 15 minutes. That's all we need. Get them to pay attention for 15 minutes and we're going to send them out triumphant because the Lord is victorious and we should always, always look victorious. No content discussion. We just talked about an entire worship service. That was it. That's not how we think about it. We're not always right. We know that sometimes we shank the golf ball here and there. It happens. Right? Sometimes we come in low energy. Sometimes we're not convinced and expectant. But the Lord is all, here's what you need to hear. The Lord is always faithful. His word does not return void. No service is, is swept away by the sin or the wiles of man. So what impact is your worship having on your knowledge of God? Right? We, we, we were talking about this just the other day. If you've been in church for 10 years, you have literally heard at least probably 500 sermons, right? If you've been in church for 20 years, you've heard 1,000 sermons. If during that time you've been in a discipleship group that met weekly, you've got another 1,000 hours worth of training. If you go to a small group during that time, you have another 500 to 1,000 hours of training. And MDiv is 106 hours. At least it was when I went through did you hear what I just said? If you've been in church for 10 years, you have five times the equivalent of an MDiv just in hearing the word taught. Now, what, you, what have we done with it? What are we doing with it? That's my point. So what is, what is impact? Is, is how is worship impacting your knowledge of God? And secondly, what resources are you making use of to prepare for and come to worship to learn about God? It's not all on me. We're in this together. It's not all on Josh. It's not all on Krista. It's not all on Caleb who served this morning. It's not all on Amanda or Mark or Kara. It's not all on Paul or Robbie. It's not all on us. 
We are in this together, and so what are you doing? How are you participating? Because this is not audience-driven. I, I hate the stage. I hate all the stuff that kind of contributes to it looking like a show. I do. I wish we could figure that out a bit better, but this is our setting. This is what God has given to us, and amen, that he provides. We'll have to think about that when we have our own space. But this is not to be something that you put nothing into and get nothing out of. So what does Hosea 4 teach us? One, it teaches that our knowledge of God determines our relationship to him and to others. Two, that our worship shapes our knowledge of God. So how you relate to God is being shaped by your worship, which includes corporate worship, personal devotion, discipleship, small group, all of those things contribute, right? And then your knowledge of God is gonna contribute to how you treat other people. And so what we need to be concerned about is not sin. (laughs) The focus is not sin and failure. In fact, that's the beauty of being able to have this table on this day, right? That Hosea 4 uh, uh, calls us to account, and yet we have a surer promise than, than our failures, than how we failed to keep the covenant. God has not failed to keep the covenant. How we've failed to be steadfast in love, God has not failed to be steadfast in love. Have we've failed to treat others well, he has not failed to make sure that his glory would be displayed in this world. And what a gift that we get to participate in this. That which Christ vowed for us, we can take in surety, right? And so sin is not, that's been taken care of. That's taken care of in the broken body. All of the wrath due, all of the sins you'll commit, past, present, and future, has been exhausted. Do you understand that? And when you take of that bread, what you're saying is, thank you that my sin no longer has the final say. Now, did I just say sin has no consequence in this world? That I did not say. But it doesn't have the final say, and therefore it should not be your primary concern Your primary concern ought to be what comes from the cup, the cup of the new covenant, which allows us to walk in newness of life, resurrected beings who can display glory in this world and display the very fine craftsmanship that the Lord has placed into each and every one of us. Amen? That means we all have something to give and to show, and each of us has a different part to play. So as we come to the table this morning, I want you to consider and think through Am I, am I focusing too much? Do I know too much about me and not enough about God? And how is my knowledge actually translating into this world, into how I live in this world? Because that matters more than anything else. And consider which way you run when you mess up, right? Are you afraid of the community of people who also understand which way to run? So we're in this together. We're all sweating together. I see you fanning. If you're, <laughs> I am drenched up here. We didn't do the, t- I think the, the, the air condition took Memorial Day off as well. Uh, we didn't plan for this. This isn't part of the sermon. So just know that. Like if you're visiting with us, you're like, man, these guys are serious. When they preach Old Testament, they turn the air off. No, that's not, that's not what we're doing here. <laughs> uh, it's not because, it's like maybe the kids will go to sleep if we turn the heat up. No, that's, that's not part of it either. All right, so we're all, we're, we'll get through this. We're gonna survive. But as you take of the bread, if the elders would go ahead and come forward, we need to remember the, the beauty of the gift and the broken bread. And that um, our, our sin, it, it does not have the final say. And that in the broken body of Christ, you need not fear the consequence 
before God, but you do have to navigate the consequence in a fallen world. So as you receive, if you would hold that bread until we can all take together as family, recognizing we are in this together. And we need to be preaching the gospel to each other. We need to be displaying God's glory to each other and recognizing what a great miracle it is. And we made it here this morning. Poor Kate made it here this morning with her horn blaring and irritating everybody along Highway 41. And yet she got here, right? And, 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 it's, and they were able to make the horn stop. But that's sometimes, that's a great picture of sin, actually. That's a great illustration, Kate. Thank you. <laughs> sin is that blaring horn, right? You are not enough. You don't matter. You've messed up so much no one can love you. You aren't good enough. You don't have what it takes. You aren't smart enough. You aren't holy enough. You aren't gifted enough. That horn that just blares and blares and blares. The broken body of Christ silences the horn. It silences, it silences all of Satan's opportunities to try to isolate you and cut you off from the means of grace. So remember what Christ said. He said, this is my body, and it was broken for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the broken body. Thank you that sin does not have the final say. Thank you that it is not something that we even have to focus on and worry about, but instead, instead, you've taken care of it in full. Would you help us grow in that? Would as we take this morning, would your Holy Spirit help each of us where we are and how we wrestle with this issue recognize how we have been set free? How when we eat of this bread, it is the sign and the seal that we are in fact justified. That we are in fact atoned for in full, past, present, and future, far as the east is from the west. Let us eat knowing that we are forgiven. In Christ's name, amen.